Okay, in the betting game, a lot of people say that it's the thrill of the chase and finding the winners that um, that is what attracts them to it. Um, I've been chasing my next guest for over two years, I think, Patrick Veach. Uh, thank you very much for finally agreeing to uh, <laughs> get in the hot seat after a lot of trying. Um, now, you published Enemy Number One in 2009, where you told your story up to that point. We go back to that a bit later. But let's get down to the crux of things. You're a professional gambler and have been for most of your working life. Uh, what makes you so special? Well, I don't know about special, but uh, yeah, you did kind of say you wanted me to answer this question to provide some help. And people have occasionally said that I've kind of ducked this question before. So I've made some notes, Simon, uh, because I thought, like, finally, I should make a, try and make a good effort to answer this question. There's, there's the age old problem that you try to, um, that, that, you know, if I explain that, oh yes, you want to look in seven furlong handicaps and make this calculation and then do this, and it might be something that works, but a week later it wouldn't. A week later it would be only useful for the people who can get on at five o'clock the night before and they grab the price on, on anything that showed up that way. Um, but I tried to come up with some ideas that, that you know, are helpful without ruining anything. Um, firstly, you've got to pay when the market's wrong, when when people get things wrong, that sounds obvious. Um, but um, my two favorite things written down are TFW and RPW. TFW's racing post, sorry, TFW's time for wrong, racing post wrong, RPW. That's not to say they're getting it wrong any more than anybody else, they're very professional organizations, but all make mistakes, but they're the ones that everybody's reading. So your value isn't when you spot something and oh yeah, time form agrees with me. Your value is when you think they've got it wrong. And even if you're only 30% they've got it wrong, if it's presented and believed by the market that it's definitely right, then that's going to give you that significant edge in how the price horse should be priced. So that's the first thing to look for. It's not just a case of mastering the basics of what chance a horse has got. You're looking for a situation where people have made it where there's a mistake in the market. Um, second one, this is probably the most interesting at all, of all. This is how you apply logic. How to explain this? That um, let's take a simple example. You think a horse is going to be suited by a longer distance, and um, it's it. But how sure are you that it is, is the case? And will it play? Um, will it play in terms of value? Um, will the circumstances today suit sufficiently, sufficiently to make it uh, you know uh, uh, more of a stamina test today? I'm going to take it outside racing and, and, get, and, and talk about how you apply logic and how that can then be brought back into perhaps a, a racing context. The way I've described this is that there's a, there's a puzzle we get put online um, and it appears all over the place. And it's about a game show um, where a contestant gets through the final and then he's presented with three doors by the host. And behind the three doors, one door contains a car and the other two each contain a goat. And then he, the contestant picks a door, and if he gets the right door, he wins the car. He picks his door, and then the, then the host shows him one of the other doors, opens the door, and behind that door is a goat. And the proposition is, should you now switch to the third door? You know that the, one of the other doors, let's say you pick door number one, you're shown that door number two has got a goat behind it, should you switch to door number three? And you get vociferous arguments on the internet as to whether you should or shouldn't switch. The current, the, the, the customary way that this is thought of is to say, well, um, people think, well, well the, 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 the advanced answer is that you should swap because you've been inside information about the other two. The other two doors started out at two thirds chance of containing the car 
and if you know one of them's the goat, then you've got a two-thirds chance of switching. But understanding the problem, because this problem is rarely carefully described, well described, and rarely well answered, because it all depends on the host and what the host knows. That whether you improve your chances by switching all depends. If you know that every single week the host will show you one of the other two doors to be a goat, then you should definitely swap. If it was guaranteed that would happen, there's nothing relevant about the fact that he did or didn't choose to show you, then it's as I said at the start, it's a two-thirds chance. Doors two and three started out two-thirds to contain the car. If you're always shown one of them is a goat, then you know the other one is a two-thirds chance. But on the other hand, if the host opened a door at random and it might have shown the car, then it's 50-50. You've had no information. If he might have shown you your car, he's just shown you one door. The two other doors are equally likely to contain the car. Um, Equally, it could be a situation where the host is trying to stuff you. If the host is working for the company and he's only going to show you another door if you pick the car, then by switching you've gone from 100% to 0%. So the way people think about this problem, and this is where I talk about applying logic, they think about the decision of the contestant, but actually it's how you view the problem. And that's very much central then to, to betting situations, that what you have to do in this situation is realise it's about the host. Realise what does the host know. And that's the basic level. Does the host always show you an empty door? Does he show, it, show any door and it could have the car behind it? Does he only show you it if, it's, um, if the situation is you've already picked the car? But then there's levels beyond that. What happens if he doesn't know, but maybe he, he sort of picks at random, but maybe this week he might have seen something. And he's sort of, is he trying to help you? Is he trying to not? Is he, does he, has he fallen out with the company and this week he's trying to help you? Um, is the company running out of money? So this week, normally they always show you a door, but this week they might not do. They might not do if you've uh, if you've picked wrong, and they might not give you the option. So there's all sorts of possibilities there to be considered in the real world. It might be that you've the contestant has seen something, you know. So how you price that up if you are betting, you know, for serious money in that situation depends on many things. But it's how you view it, and then understanding in that problem that it's the host, not the contestant. Is so you go back to the does a horse, will a horse be a good bet because you think it'll like the longer distance? Well, A, are you correct about that? How carefully have you watched it? But more importantly, um, will it play today? Will it be value or have too many people spotted it? Is it ideal because everybody else thinks the horse won't last the longer distance, but you think they're wrong? And is there a situation where simply because of the course, the going, or the amount of pace today, that it won't actually be an increase in stamina? Or could it be such a big increase in stamina because it's testing going a stiff track, and a you know, very searching pace, that it's going to be too much of an increase of stamina. All those things about an increase in distance, that's a simple example. Those parameters get talked about on the racing TV channels all the time. But a lot of things in racing aren't simple. Some of the ideas you might have are not ones where you can have a precise list that you can take notes from watching the TV. And in that situation, often it's not just the basic problem it's itself, it's, it's how you look at it. Next idea, um, punting. It's how you come back. It's all very well on the good days and the quite good days and that sort of thing, but it's how you handle it at five o'clock on the bad day. You've had a bad day's punting, some other things inside your punting life, maybe the people you're dealing with are needling you, and maybe you've got the treble up. There's, there's some issues outside of your, your, in your real life uh, which are irritating you as well. And in that situation, it's how you handle it. People have sometimes had the impression that I brush things off very easily. I don't. I take things that I find difficult quite hard but I've learned to recover from them. And whilst I might have a sulk for an hour or two, the next day, if I've had a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, to put a cricket in analogy, I'll be in off my full run-up. I've been playing for smaller stakes probably, if I've had a really bad run, 
but I mean, in terms of effort, I'll be off my full run-up. Now, a lot of people will tell you in that situation, you know, oh, if you've had a bad time, take a few days off. I would disagree with that. I would say you've got to learn to hack it. Now, yeah, bet smaller, but you need to be coming in and in terms of your work rate, increase your work rate in that situation. One exception, that's for somebody who's talking about taking it seriously. But I must also send a message to anybody watching this. If you're somebody who finds gambling tricky, if you're somebody who finds gambling a problem and you hit a sticky patch, then you should stop for a bit. Don't watch this video or any of these other videos and get into a situation where you put yourself into difficulty. But yeah, if you're professional and you're hopefully betting with the bookies money, then in that situation, dig deep, work harder. If it's a safe, gambling becomes a problem, do the opposite, step away. Um, a little point. To inspire you along, it can work to have a target. If everybody, if, if, if as a betting person you were a robot and you were unaffected by anything, then where you place your bets to some extent wouldn't matter. You just pick the best option on the day. But sometimes it doesn't hurt to have a little bit of a target. Early on in my career, I had a bit of a thing about Labrooks. It seemed to me they had everything sort of nicely sort of stitched up. They were very brave about the bets they took from people who weren't going to win, but seemed to be very mean to me or anybody who was associated with me or back in the original day when I was a tipster very early on. It seemed like they really struggled to lay the bets in those situations, but very keen to talk about the big bets they laid. To be clear, I'm talking about years ago, nothing to do with the people that are there now. Um, but in that situation, it also seemed they had their PRO going around and he was friends with everybody and there was well publicized, you know, there was a BHA investigation because he was close to some jockey and apparently no problem with that and this, that and the other. But it just seemed to me that, you know, I didn't particularly approve of that, even if it was within the rules. It just seemed to me like they had everything sorted and it was difficult to win off them. But I regrouped and I should say to those, it also irritated me that they would um, say, that bet doesn't suit us and send you away with a flea in your head, change the price, lay you nothing. So I took that on the chin, but I remembered and I regrouped and I came back. And uh, yeah, I, I, there came the day when I was going really well and I made sure that I included them. And yes, there were the days when my name was called out in their racing office when you know, they knew it was me, but there were plenty of days when they didn't know it was me. And um, yeah, Perhaps I didn't take four to one with them when they were five to one elsewhere, but occasionally I might have taken nine to two if there was a big bet available. So, yeah, as I say, sometimes having a little target, if you get a bit of the needle, if you handle it right, it can inspire you on to greater effort. Um, then the other thing I've talked about before, not everybody approved of, it's managing your brightness of your brain, brightness of your mind, how well you feel. That all this business of being like a poker player or a uh, an online gambler where you spend the whole time you know, in a bathrobe in front of your laptop, it's no good for your mind. You've got to get out there, you've got to get the light inside your eyes, you've got to get the sun on your skin, not too much, you've got to get exercise and you've got to build that into your day and you will work worse if you don't. And you know, when I talked about the fact that I have a treadmill in the office and I'll do the easier parts of my day, I'll be, I'll be walking rather than sitting. And to some people that seems like a really big effort, but it's not because of course once you've done this, and you've got out there and you've got all the exercise and you keep yourself active, you reduce the sedentary, you feel much happier. So it doesn't become any sort of hassle at all to do that. It definitely works. Um, and I really commend that. As I say, you will not play to your best if you, if you live a sedentary life. Two more points. People. Be a little bit cautious with people. In racing, there's some wonderful characters, charismatic, interesting, and some wonderfully trustworthy characters as well. But there's also a few Sharpies about. And I'll go to my grave surprised at how many people, when I checked, 
weren't sticking to the assurances they gave me. Sometimes first impressions can be good, but first impressions can also put you away. I have a phrase I call the Branson factor. Richard Branson. I must stress, I'm only stating my opinion, um, but I wouldn't be a fan. He struck me as somebody who's got a lovely way about him, lovely soft voice, creates the right image when you look at him, but it seemed, from what I've read um, and heard, um, other people's opinion that he can be you know, a very ruthless businessman. You compare it to somebody like Philip Green. Um, now, would I want to do business with either of those people? No, ideally neither. But if I had to pick one to do a business deal with, I'd probably go for Philip Green because his faults are out there for everybody to see. Whereas I think Sir Richard is somebody who's a little bit... Now, where this is relevant is I talk about the Branson factor. And that is you get some people who the image they create is so impressive that it can cause you to treat un with uh, undue amounts of confidence in them. And similarly, in reverse, you can have somebody who doesn't create a good impression and you sort of tempted to never trust them. Go on the evidence. One of your interviewees, I won't name the person concerned, but he would have the highest Branson factor of anybody you ever interviewed. and seems an incredibly nice person. And because of that, when the interview, he made an extraordinary admission about what you might call his business ethics in his early part of his career with his original customers when he was um, you know, first uh, you know, involved in the, in, the, in the selecting of horses. Um, to be clear, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about you unless it entirely matches that. Um, but as I say, that was a, an extraordinary admission, admission, but nothing was said about it because the guy, as I say, seems incredibly nice, a genuinely good-hearted person. His Branson factor, therefore, was through the roof. And those type of people, as I say, that's not to say they're not good people and you can't have great relationships with them, but just be a bit careful because some people can get away with more than other people. Uh, and as I say, the reverse applies that sometimes, you know, so first impressions are something, but go on the evidence. Trust but don't trust, don't trust 100% until you're absolutely sure. And sometimes 99 can be a good place to stop. Trust but check. And the final thing is work fast. But the speed with which you work really matters. And one thing people do, I can tell you, is they spend a lot of time typing into their phone and typing, maybe not emails these days, many, but emails, WhatsApps, etc. typing away. You can do voice messages. It's much, much faster. Do the voice message. And the people don't want to voice message you back, that's even better because it's faster to read than listen. This is practicality. People would think I'm going off on one here, but I assure you, there's only there's so much racing out there. If you want to get it done, work fast. If where possible, voice your messages. If people want to make you read them back, that's great. Save the time and get more, done, more work done and time for a real life in the background as well. Okay, Patrick, I was going to say you make it sound very simple, but you don't. But <laughs> I mean, you're, you're a very talented, Cambridge educated, mathematician that cracked betting on horses while still a student. Um, no doubt plenty of others with those credentials have tried and failed. So what did you see that others didn't? Well, first, I don't think the, uh, the, you know, the, the people at Cambridge would think I was especially Cambridge educated. I mostly focused on betting whilst I was there. So I wasn't a, my mathematics career was anything but um, impressive whilst there. Um, but um, yeah, I, I just, I suppose I had a real go at it. I really tried. I really delved deep. Um, I had advantages that, you know, I left school at 16, so I had time to really get stuck in before I even went there. Um, but I think probably going back to that list I gave before, that business of how you apply the logic, whichever aspect of looking at racing you look at, it's not just, as I say, the basic facts, the basic data, your basic opinion. It's knowing how to apply it. It's thinking a little bit outside the box, 
um, and thinking about ways to improve it, Im improve the way you look at things, maybe improve the data, improve the way the method you have. Yeah, you've got to have a real go at it. Now, it's generally considered, well, I say generally considered, that um, to be successful back in horses, you need to learn by your mistakes. You need to have experience or um, at least to have a mentor. I mean, how, how did you get why so fast? I suppose just, uh, I suppose just commitment. That whenever I read something, heard something, and obviously when you start out, you get baffled. You don't know what a handicap is. You know, I, I, like 10, 12, 14, I knew nothing about horse racing. So literally I had to learn everything. I didn't know what a furlong was. I didn't possibly know what a furlong was, but I didn't know, what, I didn't know anything. And everything. So if I heard the talk and anything, I would, you know, I, I would listen, learn, look it up, try and find out anything I could. Um, and just, just, just be relentless. Rather than thinking, oh, I don't do that. I try to acquaint myself with every possible aspect of it. In the end, obviously not all of them you use, but at least understand it. Um, yeah, just immersing. That was, that was I just immersed myself in everything. I put a lot of hours in. Um, I was willing to sacrifice a lot. And that's probably why, really, I suppose I took it so badly when it all came crashing down uh, outside of racing. Um, because I'd, I'd given up so much, you know, in those early years during uni my life at university was very sort of uh, limited. Uh, and, um, and, and to get things going, I really had put the hours in. You know, I think that's a big thing. Well, you say limited, but while you were still at university, you set up your tipping line as the professional, and you were making £10,000 a month, and that sounds like quite a lot of money for a limited sort of student. Yeah, I suppose the, the, the limited to the extent I would enjoy it, certainly then. In a few, you know, within a few years later, I was, I was enjoying it more. That was the peak. You know, obviously, economic conditions changed, and the market got flooded with other tipsters, so that did go down. Um, but sure, I, 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 you know... Um, I, uh, I put the time in, but in the few hours that I, you know, uh, that I did have and with possessions, I did live very well. Um, so, um, yeah, and at the time I didn't probably make any great effort to save because it felt like it was never going to stop. And then, and then suddenly it did. Yeah, I mean, to, to um, succeed in the world of being a tipster, you've, you've got to deliver the goods and word gets around or your reputation gets around. So did you have a like, really good fortune with a massive winning run and land, land the ground running when you started off? Yeah, um, no, I wouldn't say there was any particular run. The run I really remember is when I first came back, having had my you know, time away. So it was a few years later when I had to stop. Um, I did have a really big run then. And I probably held on to the, the view that, that that was just, you know, some very good selections. But maybe at the time I was also fortunate. Uh, and... Um, I'm sure I'd have got there in the end, but I got there very quickly when I, when I made that sort of comeback. I think that was the major run that really came. Early on, you know, there were ups and downs, but I don't remember any particularly big run. Okay, now I hope you don't mind me saying, but you jumped the gun a bit with the moniker, the professional. I mean, did you keep your real identity sort of a mystery because the student may not have got so many calls? <laughs> well, my, well, my name was out there, but I didn't broadcast the fact that I was a student, but I suppose that was only really technically true because I was probably working... 70, 80 hours a week on the, uh, on the racing, and probably in years two and three at uni, I wasn't doing 70 or 80 minutes a week on, on, on uni work, so yeah, to some extent I was only a student in name. Yeah. Okay, now did you feel pressure knowing that people were winning or losing on your say-so? Was that an extra burden on you while you were picking winners? Um, yes, I much prefer to win or lose my own money. I found that a lot of pressure, I, you know, I did. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I took it very, very seriously. When I started, I used to put the message on at 8.30 p.m. And it was years, I mean, it was years later, two, three years later, 
before I ever put a message on at 7.30. It just seemed so lax to do it early. I remember the, it was a real watershed moment and then, then I realised that doing it occasionally didn't matter that much, but I would literally record the message at 8.24 and it would take five minutes to do it, you know. Um, it, it was, yeah, I was very intense about it and, and because I felt the pressure of wanting other people to, you know, to do well. In the end, if there was a situation whereby my last message was midday and something came up, maybe a going change at 1.30 and I placed a bet for myself, even if that was the bigger bet, I'd sooner the horse I tipped won earlier in the day um, because I just so intensely wanted people to, to do okay. You know? Okay, now if, if tipping for all your customers ringing up wasn't scary enough, you progressed to supplying personal advice to Michael Tabor. Now, did that make you look at your selection process differently? Well, you wouldn't say that Michael was the most undemanding of people. Uh, and so uh, that was a factor there, yeah. Um, uh, um, he also liked a shorter price. You know, I think Michael's always liked a, a short one because you can get on. Um, so yeah, he was very much more interested at the front end of the market. So it was a case of probably giving a greater focus to the horses towards the front end of the market. And um, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, so it made some changes, but you know, I was also doing my own punting as well. So not, ma not massively. Okay, so at this point, we're going, to, we're going to fast forward a bit. For people that haven't read your book, can you tell us about the episode that changed your life for the, the gangster Calvin Hall? Yeah, um, so to briefly take myself back into that, um, I was going along nicely. I'd you know, done well out of racing um, and uh, you know, I bought myself a nice house in Cambridge and everything was fine in the world. And then I got introduced to somebody who was an acquaintance of somebody I knew down the gym, had a business proposition for me, and it turned out to be a shakedown for money. It was an extortion attempt, and it culminated a few weeks later with the person coming around with an associate. And, um, you know, they said if I didn't give them a large sum of money, then it was within hours, you know, within hours of days, I forget the exact things, a while ago now. And that they would come back and it was 70,000, but if, I did, it, if it was within a short space of time, if the money wasn't provided, that they'd come back and break my legs or cut them off. This was serious because it was widely known in Cambridge as soon as I made mention of the name that this person was the only suspect in a murder. And so this was, this was very serious stuff. And I took the decision that there was, I could have ignored it, I could have paid it, I could have disappeared. But I took the decision to, to testify and disappear. Um, and obviously that's a situation when you really have to disappear. So I completely disappeared. I was offered police protection. But then I thought, well, someone will know where I am. So I, I disappeared completely. And um, yeah, so I had to stop work completely. Uh, I dealt with my own security. That was extremely expensive. Uh, and uh, so when I came back eight months later, the pressure was really on. Um, but, um, but it made a, a massive difference to, you know, um, to, to me and how I was. You know, I, I had to be so careful during those periods. Um, and um, it culminated seven years later. Uh, you know, the guy was convicted on, on the strength of my evidence uh, for the extortion attempt, but then um, uh, an attempted murder uh, of a policeman came up some years later and he was uh, sent away for 20 odd years. But yeah, definitely, it made a, lot, made a big difference and, uh, and it meant that when I came back, uh, I needed to earn quickly and, and that made a massive difference to how hard I worked for a while. I set new records of what I was, able, how, how long I was able to work for and, uh, you know, and, and really probably also bet more aggressively uh, and that suddenly made a huge difference then over the years that followed there. Now that must have been a truly terrifying sort of time. Did, did, do you think it's changed you forever since then? 
yeah, there'll always be differences. I mean, there'll always be, there's, there's still certain security implications, you know, you, um, I, I'd notice the world around me a bit more than people might realise. You wouldn't be wanting to break into my house without warning me. Um, and, um, but personality-wise, that was huge. And when I think back to those days, uh, you know, I, I just did nothing other than, than I needed to win. I needed to win quite significantly. And so, you know, for that period, you know, there was steam coming out of my ears all throughout that. Um, and to some extent, you know, when the book was written sort of a few years later, I wouldn't write it the same way now. It was far too obsessed by how successful I'd been and how much money I'd won and this, that and the other, and frankly too boastful. But that was the world I was in because, because I'd been put in such a difficult situation um, uh, that, that, you know, it, uh, that, that intensely getting it right became an absolute obsession. And you know, the, the, there's a face, you know, if I think back, you know, that was the face I had on for months, you know. And if I, if I let myself drift for a moment or two, um, you know, I, I would say some major sporting event came on or something like that, I'd notice that, but I'd be like, no, you get back to work, this is what you do now. And, uh, you know, and that, that was a, for a long time, but even for years afterwards, whenever the pressure was on, I'd be able to recall that. And in the end, I channeled it into a strength that when things got difficult, I could, uh, you know, I could, I could remember and remember what I'd been through, and even turn on a quarter of the mindset I had then would would have been enough. Okay, because before that, you weren't the uh, you weren't the shadowy figure. Obviously, you've had to be a bit. Um, you enjoyed the trappings of wealth, Ferraris, helicopters to the races, uh, TV appearances of Esther Ransom. So you <laughs> enjoy all that stuff. I don't know about Ferraris and helicopters, plural, but um, <laughs> um, but um, the um, yeah, well, it, it, as I say, it wasn't in force change that that that. Um, that you know, for for many years, I you know needed to make sure I wasn't photographed. You know, I needed to make sure that you know, and if somebody bumped into me or said, "Oh, I," because of course, in that long time, you know, I was told the best place to hide out was in London. And of course, you would bump into people occasionally, or someone saw you, and so, so you'd have explanations ready of how you'd popped into London because you know, even knowing I was in a place with seven million people was more information I wanted to give out. And so yeah, that that changed it. And I'm not as shadowy these days, but. Um, but it certainly makes it's certainly made a difference to your outlook on life, yeah. Okay, Patrick. Well, we're doing this interview predominantly because you're a very successful professional gambler. Now, you've been in, involved in several coups, but unusually, including horses that you've actually got on at a hundred to one and fifty to one, and all the rates down. I mean, how do you keep that from getting out? <laughs> It's a very complicated answer, Simon. I, I, I don't know if I can dive up. Go on then, it's simple. Um, it's three words. You don't tell anyone. We come back to what I said earlier on about trusting. Trusting 99%, trusting 100%. The easiest thing to do is to decide who absolutely has to know. This is all over 10 years ago. I haven't done anything like that for a long, long time. Um, but back in the day when there was you know, a horse that, that you know, I owned or co-owned and uh, you, know, uh, you, you were lining something up, in that situation, um, yeah, there would always be, oh, we can trust this person, he's 100%. And it's not that person deliberately does you wrong. It's they accidentally, they, they make a mistake, they say something, they're overheard something, they're seen texting something, um, or they just assume that the person they're telling you can absolutely be trusted. And so many you know, gambling situations get unshipped by, by not the, the, the friend deliberately doing you wrong, but doing it accidentally, not realizing what he's saying or who's, who's hearing him or whatever. 
So the simplest thing is keep the circle much smaller than people would, would do. And then you've got to obviously be organised enough that you don't need to forewarn 57 people that it's about to happen. Um, so in the case of the 100 to 1 you mentioned, Exponential, I can't remember the exact race time, but let's say it was 2 o'clock, it was early in the afternoon. Um, I think at 1.52 if it was a 2 o'clock race, you know, memory's not precise the minute now, at that point two people knew, literally me and the trainer. And sure I'd had to have people ready for about five minutes earlier than that, people had been readied, but then I was readying people all the time. I was, you know, so they didn't know even which race it was, never mind which horse. Um, so that wasn't significant then to be ready. So, that, so the, the fact that I was able to get people ready without having to tell them, and then at 1.52 suddenly the, you know, the torpedo was launched. Um, but um, yeah, or, I mean, for example, there was a guy there who had a share in that horse who, who helped put the money on, but he trusted me and was happy um, with the situation where I would tell him when it was time to put the money on. And in fact, as I recall, he was up a ladder at 1.45, but he trusted me to get him down from the ladder and, uh, and into action in time, and, and he did, you know. How much of a buzz is that when you land something like that? I remember in the final furlong and thinking, you know, go on, yeah, go on. And, um, and, and you probably didn't call it until a point when it would have been 1.01, five seconds earlier, but you don't like to call it when there's that much at stake. Uh, yeah, yeah, good. Now, did you ever did you ever organise a coup and then have a chuckle to yourself when somebody like the late great Barney Curley got the blame? It was more common that things were put down to me that weren't down to me. Um, there were plenty of times when they didn't, but I tended to know when, uh, according to how I was playing my hand, I would tend to know which times it was going to be spotted and which times it wasn't. Um, but obviously, the bookmakers they've always had this thing that sort of they 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 can get carried away and they want to lay a knock a bet back to 25 pounds and then they shorten the price and sometimes they go back it with the other bookmakers of course that's fine but you do that and occasionally you're going to get the wrong signal um so yeah there were plenty of times the market had it correct plenty of times when they didn't know anything at all just didn't didn't twig it plenty of times when they probably twigged the wrong horse originally um and um yeah that's all but that's all part of it isn't it that uh, that uh, you know sometimes you have to box a little bit clever now, the bookmakers do love to squeal terribly when somebody actually gets one over on them, almost to the point of calling foul. Now, do you think it's a bit, do you think it's fair to organise a touch and tuck up those poor bookies? My views on this have actually changed. There's a danger of people sort of saying, well, that's all a bit hypocritical, but I think the world has changed. When I first got into racing, having a horse and laying it out for pump was spoken about in hallowed terms. There would have been 99 positive comments about that sort of thing for everyone negative. Now, I was clear about one thing, and you know, some people have struggled to believe me on this. We never had a situation where jockeys were told on a previous day not to win. There were quite a few times when horses that were not fancied at all went and won. There was a situation at the Air Western meeting where a horse was absolutely not fancied, but always the jockey would be out there doing the best, and we'd had to go better on the second horse. But and, and people, if people don't believe that, you get much better prices in that situation because you come back to the thing you said before about this very small circle, that when no one knows, you get a massively bigger price. And also, you're able to get on that price much closer to the race because you're not com commit competing with all the people that know. So that, for me, was why I was happy with it on a moral basis, that if, you know, it might have been our judgment that the horse might win on this race, but if we're wrong one, two, three, four races earlier, 
then fine, the horse went and won. And, and that happened quite a few times. I remember one situation where I had a co-owner who was absolutely livid and probably still is to this day. Now, generally speaking, when people came in on horses with me, they did very well. Um, but, um, but there were the odd time. And this time, it, the, the chap was, was, was furious that the horse had won when I said I didn't fancy it at all. Um, and he assumed there was a tacit understanding that the horse would not win. And I said, that's not how it works, you know. Um, but my views have changed. As I say, back then, you know, things were spoken about much more positively. Now it's a much more even thing. You still get lots of sort of, oh, we're nice, well done, putting one over the bookies. But now it's a two-way market. Punters are a lot more self-righteous now. They don't necessarily want to accept the way things were. Uh, and now, as I say, I haven't had a horse set out to land a punt in over 10 years. And I've no intention, it's partly, of course, also influenced by the fact you can't get on to any significant degree to sufficiently large bets to make it worthwhile. But also that situation that in terms of us preserving the popularity of sport, you've got a much more aware punter. You've got all the different sort of Twitter and forums and this, that, the other. And in that situation, now it can be the punter who loses, who's laid the bet when you win. Um, the agenda has changed. And I think, you know, I remember it was, I think Barry Hills quoted saying that, you know, the, the punter loves a whiff of corruption. I'm not sure they do anymore. And I think now I've always been an advocate of strong regulation of riding tactics, of there being an extra rule below non-trier that says, well, we're not saying you didn't try here. And I've, I've had discussions with the authorities a number of times about this, that having everything where the, 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 the rule come under the running horses on their merits banner, there needs to be a rule below that that says, we're not saying that. We're just saying that on this occasion, we didn't see enough. And so it'd be a much smaller penalty, but we're saying we didn't see enough. We need to see more to be, make sure that that horse was raced fairly. Uh, and um, yeah, I do think that slightly more towards the sort of Hong Kong situation where there is tight regulation is a good thing now because you do not want a situation, uh, as I've said before, where the punter knows that if he's backed Chelsea against Liverpool on a Sunday afternoon and he's behind with a, the football equivalent of a furlong to run, he at least knows they're trying like mad to score. What you don't want is a situation whereby he's had an each way bet and inside the final furlong, he can't detect whether the jockey's bothered or not. That's not helping us. So I think the situation has changed and my view has changed. Okay, now, um, slightly ambiguous, I've got to say, but how have you managed to stay one step ahead of the increasingly draconian bookies? <laughs> well, um, it isn't easy. And, um, you know, you've had to, I've had to suppose, spread my wings a bit. I probably had to have the ability to find more potential situations and, 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 and get around them in different ways. But ultimately, you know, probably you have to have more bets and accept smaller stakes than you used to. There's other things I could say, but obviously, um, you know, back when I wrote the book, I, 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 I said a lot because I was going to change a lot and I have made many changes. And, and, you know, a lot of people have no idea, pretty much everybody has no idea what, you know, what I'm doing any day. And that's, that's you know, that, that's, that's essential. Now the market's got a lot weaker. Now, you've won millions back in horses, so, but I think most people would say it's fair game that the bookies don't really want to take your bets anymore. But there's people out there that, haven't won millions or even thousands that get restricted to pennies. How do you feel about that? Yeah, this is a tricky subject and I might even surprise a few people here. Um, one of the things that's coming obviously is the affordability checks and the money laundering and this, that and the other. And that's a situation that is outside the bookmaker's control. Admittedly, it has been abused on occasions and they should be cautious about that. Uh, the reputational damage if they apply the restrictions much more stringently to people who've won they are trying to claim their winnings and there have the, the been some well-publicised situations there, and they should be careful about that, as I say, in terms of the, the political damage they could do. But on the business of, of taking bets, um, yes, 
there are situations where bookmakers have been over stingy. They should rethink the situation. It's possible the bean counters have gone too far because now the situation has been reached where it's becoming more widely publicised that they can be very windy about taking bets, that they don't like bets from winners. And that potentially impacts on the number of people on a bet. Uh, and, you know, I think in that situation, as I say, now when you've got more self-righteous punters, it may well be that you can get, achieve a higher PL by being super um, sort of stingy about what level of activity you allow. Um, they probably want to rethink about that. As I say, there's a widely held belief now that they may be hitting their long-term turnover. But the point, as I say, that may surprise a few people is that in this discussion, not enough is said that there's a large body of punters whose offering to the bookmaker is ridiculous, that could not possibly be sustained as acceptable. For a while, when exchanges came in, it was possible to get away with all sorts of things uh, and for punters to just spend their whole time watching the internet smoke signals and giving the bookmaker no margin whatsoever. Bookmaking would never have existed if the punter was always able to monitor exactly where things were on the exchanges and provide only a small filter of his business, his or her business, um, in a way, um, uh, you know, ju just, just tailored by how things were sitting on the machine. That was never how bookmaking worked. And so there's been a, a, quite a big class of punters that expected the original offering of a bookmaker, you can bet a decent bet in any race at any, any time, any horse, but they wanted to now apply it when they could see exactly how things sat on the machine and be totally obsessed by that. So they only want to play when the exchange price is the same or maybe very slightly bigger, or in some cases only when it's under. Bookmaking would never have worked if that was like that. In the old days, sure, you might have thought you knew a warm one, but for all you knew, you were going in for nine to four about a horse that if there'd been an exchange, it was 4.2. For all you knew, you had a hot tip for it, but five people had a big reason why it couldn't win. Um, and for all you knew, there was another horse in the race that was just about to be crashed, but it hadn't come out on the ex because there was no exchanges back then. So the ability to follow the exchanges means that bookmaking has changed and people who expect that they can offer not their business, but just that subset of, I think this is about to shorten business and expect to be accommodated in the way they were before the exchanges, that's not fair. And the bookmakers probably could have been slightly stronger in articulating the situation that Yes, there are people out there that probably should be more generous to, who aren't much threat to them and are being overly restricted. But equally, there's a large body of some quite vocal punters. So, some vocal punters who are say have every reason to be aggrieved, but some others who really need to realise that the days soon after the exchanges coming in aren't coming back, and that if they're not willing to offer a decent spread of their business at different times of day, and as I say, not just entirely governed by where the exchanges are or where they're going to be in five minutes, um, then yeah, some of them need to adapt. Okay, Patrick, one of the spheres where you were very successful was the um, was the scoop six on the tote, which uh, back in the day. I mean, what attracted you to that as a serious betting proposition? I suppose the, the size of the pools. There were some massive bonus pools, and um, it probably quite suited my skill set. It was quite analytical, obviously combining the, you know, the perms and also. You know, often the result of one race one and two can affect the probabilities in later races. So, yeah, but it was ultimately it was something you were able to do in size. And with the big rollovers, sometimes there was there was money in the pool. In the end, uh, I think at the time they got a bit carried away and made it too difficult and, and, and reduced the interest. But it's coming back now because with what we just talked about, with the, the fact that bookmakers aren't as keen to lay anymore, some of these whirlpool pools are looking really promising. And generally, the, you know, the tote seems on the up. And for two sides, for the recreational punter who's, you know, hopes to win but isn't necessarily a consistent winner, 
the total betting for much smaller margins than bookmakers. Um, and, um, you know, it's obviously the difference you can't take a price. Um, but also for the serious punter, now you're talking about a situation where you can get on because there's massive pools. Um, so that's certainly something I'm going to be giving some focus to um, in terms of, um, yeah, look, looking at those pools again that now that they're bringing in some really big pools with the, with the co-mingling from abroad. Um, but yeah, back in the day, it was, it was, it was say, the, the size of the rollovers and that sort of thing, it was, it was irresistible. Now, there was a, another punter that was um, very prolific with the Scoop 6, Harry Finley, who I had the pleasure of interviewing a while back. Now, I don't know if you watched it, but he told us that you were uh, very thorough when it came down to uh, collaboration with him, including co- contracts. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, well, you told me to watch that. That was a great story, wasn't it? Two, two major betting figures meeting only the once, and, you know, and I got sent away with a flea in my ear and this, that, the other. A couple of slight problems with the story that we have, in fact, never met. And he did, in fact, sign the contract on the day. But I'm being slightly harsh there because, um, you know, uh, uh, the sense of what Harry was saying there is true, that we are two very, very different people in terms of how we would play our hand. And he would be very keen to trust in that situation, a complete stranger and, and rely on the sort of word of bond and that sort of thing. In the end, if you did that for enough years, there would be a time when, when somebody collected the million pounds or whatever and didn't pay. And uh, there was a previous episode where people wanted to accept fax signatures with no passport verification. And I said no to that. And, and I always wanted things done properly. But I'm the type of person, if somebody did run off with a million pounds, I wouldn't be able to let it go. I wouldn't break the law. But if I had to you know, find myself three years later in Honolulu, having put 600 hours into finding the person, and by then I had people wandering up and down outside their offices with sandwich boards reporting what they'd done, if that's what it took to get paid, you know, I would, I would waste it because I just wouldn't really be able to accept that. Um, so, yeah, it, different people, as I say, Harry's a hugely charismatic figure that's bright and abrasing, um, but he'd have a more free way of doing that. And, um, yeah, uh, I think he's happy the way he does it. I'm happy the way I... He didn't seem very keen on the way I did it, but, um, but like I say, different, you know, different people do it different ways. Now, without harking back to the good old days in inverted commerce too much, in your early days, you used to ply your trade on course and do battle face to face. Do you like miss looking into the whites of Stephen Little's eyes when having your uh, your nap on? Uh, yeah, I mean, just if, imagine if you could bring that back. I mean, I, I haven't even thought about that, but yeah, that was electric. In two phases for me, probably before the victim of crime episode, I was just going there as a watcher. I mean, I'd be, I was a reasonable sized player, but compared to the big players around there, um, you know, you're just watching in a small, in a few square meters, and you could stand right there. You'd have the major players, layers and, you know, players and layers betting in huge sums, and you could just watch it all unfold in front of you, and it, the atmosphere was electric. Um, and then, as I say, when I came back, at that point, not on course that often, because, you know, I, I tended to, still keep a low profile and like prefer people didn't know what I backed but there were occasions yeah when you know uh, it was more enjoyable to to have it done in in real life to 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 you know get on at the track on those days when you could um yeah I really enjoyed that it's a shame that you know those big sums it's the same amount of layers you know, the, the sheer amount of layers willing to play for big sums you know it's a shame that's that's gone but um yeah for those that you know still better the races it's yeah, definitely an attractive thing now we talked earlier that you um some of your biggest coups were around your own horses so are you still involved with owning horses i say not in betting terms anymore um outside of the, the sort of the 
the, the change in, in, in the way racing is viewed, it's always, as I say, the markets are much smaller. But I've definitely moved more into the bloodstock side. Um, it's, it's a very poorly kept secret now, but Waverley Racing that owned those, uh, that was nearly all my syndicate. Um, and uh, you know, so, I, I, yeah, I, I was the majority shareholder in all those Manuel de Vega, Antonio de Vega, Feliciano de Vega, the, the Waverley Racing owned. And um, that was about using my skills, alleged skills, <laughs> to, uh, to spot some value in the bloodstock markets at the time. I was very confident that Lope de Vega was, um, was a much uh, underrated sire. He was 50,000 euros at the time. He's now 125,000, and I think he'll rise further from there. And, um, and so that, that was a situation where instead of having to get a bet on, there was, there was another way of exploiting that. Uh, and that's something I'm keen to do more of. Um, you know, as I say, those markets are, are, are sizable, and um, you know, I'd like to think I have some skills there. The, the analytical techniques I've used in, in betting are very useful in assessing what's underrated about a, a pedigree. And also about, I suppose, the game theory of how you play your hand in those situations, how you play your hand in, in, in choosing and bidding and, and, and everything from there. And then, of course, you know, um, in the future, I'm unlikely to be racing horses to the same extent. I'm probably more interested in, you know, the, the likes of Manuela Antonio, you know, um, will have progeny and they'll be for sale um, because there's far more wealthy people than me able to take the chance on getting a good one. So I, I'm more interested perhaps in, in producing. Um, I'm sure there'll be a bit of owning along the way if I find something I want to buy. Um, but mainly that interest will be trying to, trying to put it together from, from, from scratch, you know, uh, choice of mare, sire, that sort of thing. So... Yeah, that's certainly, and, and they say with the, with the possibility that betting markets might contract further, and I'm finding there's, you know, uh, there's a, a few people are tapping me on the shoulder and perhaps aware of the odd thing I've done and, you know, keen for me to help them. So yeah, that's probably a, a growth thing for me going forward. Yeah. Okay, so you've seen punt, you've seen racing from a punter's point of view, an owner, and now a breeder. So how would you say, what would you, how do you feel about the state of racing these days, and what would you do to improve it? I was hoping you'd say that. I've got another list, Simon. <laughs> if you didn't ask that question, I was probably going to have to ask my own at the end and demand a forum. <laughs> uh, people have heard a little bit about on one subject from me before, uh, but I have got a bit new to say on that subject. It, it's no secret that I'm very against the size of the fixture list. Um, it surprises me that some people have still refused to accept this. Um, the bookmakers have been very and even some of the authorities have been very sort of determined not to give way to this, despite the overwhelming evidence that it's not what their customers want. Um, there's a chap, I follow racing Twitter, I'm not a, you know, I don't play on there myself, but I do follow it. And um, there's a chap on there, he's probably the best known Twitter person that works for the major bookmakers. A tremendous contributor. His ability to come on with good sense, how he copes with some of the people on there, I do not know. But his ability to talk amazing good sense about horse racing, in a, about the form, be it about other aspects of the racing politics, about general politics and life, amazes me how you know you've got somebody there who can talk so much sense, and then just there's this one little blind spot when it comes to fixtures, that when you've stuck to a position for so long, that in the end, the fallacy that bookmakers' data justify this fixture list is just plain wrong. That sure you could prove that when there were four meetings in a day, you had more turnover than three days or three days. The meetings were three days, so to days with three meetings. But that's in the short term. It's a, a simple fact of economics as well as the maths that if you massively increase the supply, you will have more demand in the short term. But as a matter of mathematics, that proves nothing in the, in, in the long term. And from an economic point of view, it's widely known that when you <clears throat> ramp up supply, that demand often tails off. 
but yet this incorrect extrapolation of the data has <coughs> sustained for decades uh, and more and more fixtures and it is simply wrong and the customers it's almost unique in the world of um, uh, you know of, of sport or elsewhere that a situation where the customers are banging the door saying not there was a horse race betters forum survey massively against the size of the fixture list racing tv did a survey massively against the fixture list I think it was Maddie Player of the Racing Post put a tweet on saying, what would you change about racing? Just open the subject completely, not about fixtures. And the answer reduced the number of fixtures from, you know, largely punters and racegoers, reduced the level of fixtures, was hundreds of percent more popular than any other answer. And yet this continues to be ignored as if the customer can just be rammed more and more and more what they don't want. Now, the latest development on this has been, well, not, not that recent, but <clears throat> some, some while ago, was the offer of Mark to supply an extra five million pounds if the, if the racing industry accepted two more knocks. One, even more races, but two, ten race cards, which meant that racing... Some people like to follow a race meeting or an afternoon or an evening where there's a couple of race meetings. But having it where suddenly a race meeting became an unmanageable portion of four and a half hours or more would then mean that doing it for a session became almost impossible. So you people were forced to bet for only part of a meeting and that would take one of the appeals away. People say, but it's five million. But you add up all the money put into horse racing from punters through the levy, through media rights, through owners, through purchasing horses, through training the horses, <clears throat> through race goers, sponsors. You add all those money, to, uh, sums of money together and in a year it would come to hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds. So the ARC offer, which was presented, including by some people in the media, as a no-brainer, was in fact, in terms of raising the overall money going into racing, was going to be less than 1% in return for two further attacks on punters' enthusiasm. Because everybody, racegoers, sponsors, race fans, punters, owners, everybody, trainers, stable staff, everybody doesn't like the fixture list. And at some point, this has to stop. Hopefully, there'll be a racing industry left when it finishes. There needs to be seasons as well. The most popular growth sports have had some sort of break. Now, I suggested maybe having two to four weeks off. Uh, and someone said, again, normally a, a fine contributor said, well, that would cause chaos in the industry. But we already have nearly a week. And obviously, my starting point was two weeks. So it's only an extra week to have two weeks off at the start of this. I think it's six days at the moment. And in that two weeks, you have time to preview. You have time for appetite to build. But then when you start, you need to incentivize Doncaster to turn the Lincoln meeting into a, the, the BHA gives them a big financial incentive to turn the Lincoln meeting into a jumps fixture, maybe a northern jumps festival. And you start somewhere out the Craven meeting so it doesn't start with a whimper. And then you have to have clearly defined stages, stage one, stage two, the Guineas, etc. Chester three, York Dante four, clearly defined stages, like they would in terms of the rounds of the Super Bowl, like in terms of they would in terms of, you know, Formula One and that sort of thing. And by having a proper, by having a break, and of course, you don't have to stop racing for two weeks. You just do what they already do for six days. You just shuffle the fixtures around so you have a bit more jumps here, but you know, the flat happens slightly more before and after, the jumps more during that jumps window. You call it the jumps window for two weeks and you, you have extra prize money for a, a few particular incentives during that time. But by having a proper break, a proper start, and proper staging through the season, it becomes a much more attractive proposition. And we need to think about that and stop just assuming that more is more, because it isn't working. Okay, Patrick, we're on the last, we're on the last part. Now, um, 
people want to know about your punting, so we're going to have to go back to the punting. When you wrote Enemy Number One, uh, you'd won 10 million quid from the bookmakers. Um, how much is it now? <laughs> well, as I say, I, I probably, a different time, different place of mind when I wrote the book, and I wouldn't write it the same way now. Apologise for those people who felt it was all a bit much, and um, yeah. It's still my job, it's still my main job, although I've got other interests like the bloodstock and that sort of thing, and there'll be some other things over the years. Um, yeah, it's my main occupation and has been and still will be going forward, but I think people have seen enough of my figures to, for one lifetime. Well, people, but people watching this want to learn from you because you're one of the most successful punters there's been. So we'll ask you a few questions. Obviously, you're not going to tell us what you actually do, yeah. but first of all, how much does luck factor into your calculations? Well, in some ways, probably more than it used to. Um, that back in the day when you could get bigger bets on, then it was slightly more about trying to sculpt the perfect bet, trying to wait for something you really, really liked. Uh, not just that, but you were certainly you could be more selective and really like a situation for a bigger bet where you thought everything had come together. But now you spend too long on that. You know, you can only increase your stakes so far anyway. Um, so now having to embrace other situations. I remember back in the day. And he was really keen on a horse that was pulled up last time out. I think it was 15 to 8. Um, I was thinking, why would you want to go through the stress of a horse that you know, ran terribly last time and might do again? And he said, well, the opposition are poor. And it just wasn't my way. But I've had to learn to adapt and go for situations that I wouldn't have liked before, where you've had to say, well, this horse has been completely out of form. Or this horse is, you know, bang in form but doesn't look good enough. But, you know, the opposition today, this might happen, that might happen. It might get lucky. It might, you know steal an easy lead or they might go too quick in front of it or whatever so yeah having to embrace all sorts of possibilities and just just simply to find more opportunities yeah so having to embrace that probably more uh, rather than just focusing on the type I really like okay as, uh, as we've talked about it's a hell of a lot of racing these days so does anybody help you I don't mean getting on I mean with your selection process yeah um, not really in terms of I like to make my own decisions there are people that help me in terms of the constituent parts, in terms of, you know, I have people supplying me with reports and this, that and the other. But, um, so I start the day with a lot of work already done, but in terms of the decision-making process, I've, I've always preferred to, yeah, to do that myself. Okay, now when you've, when you've had a bet, do you stand on the sofa and ride a finish? Do you watch every race? Is that your... Um... I watch every race, but very few of them live. That's probably something that should be on that on my list, the first list. That again, about being fast and saving time. Sure, there's afternoons that you really need, evenings you really need to see, because you want to see what happens in race one and race two. It might, you know, how much does the ground softened up or whatever. But on the other hand, and sure, there might be things that you learn, but that costs you time. And being able to play it back, fast forward, watch the replays, a lot of the time. And I want to have a you know a very nice sort of enjoyable life, be it exercise, be it real life, socialising, friends, you know, other things I want to do. So you've got to work efficiently. And the way I do it, and it's, some people like to watch the whole afternoon, I'll watch very little racing live. Uh, and I'll, you know, when I'm watching back a meeting, it means I can watch quickly. Or, uh, I will watch every race, but sometimes I might think, well, let's just you know, wind forward a few furlongs and that sort of thing, you know, if, if I feel I can in that situation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it took a bit of discipline because there's always that temptation to want to see how your money's going. But in the end, if you want to have a, you know, do it to a very high standard and have a life outside racing, you've got to be very efficient with the time. Okay, so how many bets a week would you have? <laughs> yeah, well, that's 
we're back into the realms of the stingy bookmakers and their intelligent systems. So I think that's a, a question I'll have to duck. Okay, so we've, we've, um, we know you're financially secure, but you must have been under a hell of a lot of pressure when you first started before you were financially secure. How much sleep did, have you lost in your life because you chose to bet for a living? Um, I'd say probably took it very, very seriously when I had a, a, a customer base as opposed to just punting for myself. Um, yeah, uh, there were times when I'd sort of wake up at night thinking, oh, crap, I'm going to have to change that. Should I put a message on at nine o'clock? I don't think I ever did. Uh, should I change, change the message at nine o'clock in the morning? Um, and then, um, but yeah, in, the, in that comeback year, in that comeback year, there was a, those first few months, yeah, I was, uh, I was in a different world there, and that was that was certainly in the realms of big stress, and you know, there were times when I'd be, yeah, difficult sleep or that sort of thing, yeah. Um, but in the end, it's it's you know, evening out, and probably I've got better at the things I've talked about, the getting out there, the exercise, and that sort of thing, that reduces the stress. But back in the day, for sure. And was the enforced COVID break beneficial to you? Yeah, I think it was. Time to regroup and that sort of thing. Um, I did try to help with the COVID numbers. Um, a friend of mine had contact with Matt Hancock and there was a bit of a text exchange and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, those bits that were mathematical weren't, in my view, done that well. The, uh, and, uh, but actually, this is a good example of applying logic uh, and, uh, of, of where you can find the solution to a problem by really understanding it by not just churning the data or studying the races. One thing that an enormous amount of money was spent on was writing to people saying, will you take a blood test so we can establish what percentage of people have COVID? But the trouble is that was an optional test. And so, as I pointed out, um, it wasn't going to work because the b biggest time this was in the news was over Christmas. I think it was Christmas 2020. So they were doing a mass survey of people in both December and January. But the trouble with December is you're going to massively undercount the number of people with COVID because broadly, if you divided the population into those that obeyed the rules uh, and those that broke the rules, the rule breakers were very unlikely to say yes to the blood test in December because they were out partying. Uh, and there were those type of people who were probably just a little bit less socially responsible and some other people who objected to um, the way things would be done and didn't believe in lockdowns, etc. And, you know, they're entitled to their view. Um, but there were also some people who were just very laissez-faire and just simply don't like rules in general. And they were more likely to be the ones exceeding the numbers out, you know, socialising or that sort of thing, or going around to people's houses more than was allowed or wasn't allowed at all at the time. So in that situation, the people who say yes to the blood test are also the people more likely to be obeying the rules in terms of not catching COVID. So you're going to get a big undercount. When I put that point, it came back and said, oh, yes, but we'll be able to compare it with next month. But of course you couldn't because January was very different. January, um, January sorry, December it was more open and January was locked down. So come January, the rule breakers are much more likely to say yes to the blood test because now they're bored, they're sat at home and they're bored. Uh, and so they're, they're still not going to say yes quite as uh, often as the sort of rule obeyers. Um, but as a group, the rule breakers are much more likely to say yes to the test in January than December. So in the end, all that money, in my view, was completely wasted because not only does it not give you the answer, it massively undercounts the answer of how, what percentage of the population had COVID, but it undercounts it by a way that you'll never know by what percentage, so the number is useless. And you can't even compare the next month 
because all you can say confidently is the extent to which it will undercount it will be reduced in January. But again, you don't know how much. You don't know how much the undercount is in December. You don't know how much the account undercount is in January, except that you know it's smaller. And so it's understanding those things of what affects it. It's having that logic. There's no, there's no data. There's no, you know, book about COVID that tells you that when you lock down people, rule breakers will accept the blood test more often. But that's something I'd have happily bet 16 to 1 on about. I was absolutely certain of it. And sometimes it's that ability to, to, uh, yeah, to apply the logic even when you can't calculate the answer. Okay. Now, obviously it's a high-pressure job what you do. Why do you still do it? Because it can't be the money. Um, I, I have had to probably put in more reasons to do it. Uh, there would have come a point where you think, well, you know, I've done enough with this now. That I've, I've, I've saved well, I've invested well. Um, but I did, so I did like the idea of putting an extra incentive. So um, obviously, you know, it's one thing to save and to look after, you know, friends and family and that sort of thing. But I thought over time I wanted to have something else motivating me. So I've set up two charities um, and I had help with a couple of neighbours with the admin. Um, one just deals with um, you know, sort of a range of, of, of different donations and the other one focuses on the homeless. So um, I've given a four bedroom house to the, to the charity I've set up and then the plan is every four years I'll give another one and hopefully just keep building it up two, three, four, five, six, um, assuming I live long enough. Uh, and um, yeah, and that has definitely motivated me thinking there's, m there's more than me standing to benefit. Um, I've also done a bit of mentoring there where there's people been through that difficult experience and now some of them wanting to, to go into business on their own and just a little bit of business advice about the do's and don'ts and what to be careful of. And yeah, so that's definitely helped to, to motivate me to, uh, you know, to, to keep on going rather than thinking, well, take it easy now, because in the end, I don't think I'd be happy for taking it easier. You know, I've, I've got plenty of balance in my life already, so it was good to have a reason to, to carry on. Well, well, anybody that's watched this or read your book or known of you before will be under no illusion that you've been very, very successful. But everybody's got a chink in their armour. Have you got one? Um, yes. I can get stuck in a groove. I, can, I, I like to, I suppose, hone a method I can probably sometimes get too stuck on one way of doing things. I'm probably a pretty moderate poker player. I've, over the years, I like to think I did okay. I you know, won a little tournament once, but it was a tiny tournament. And probably flattered myself. You know, I, I could sustain myself on the bottom tables on a holiday in Las Vegas, but probably not much more than sustain myself. And um, <clears throat> the point there is that I don't want, I, the way I do it, I don't like to have to be adapting to what other people are doing. I don't like having to adapt my play I don't want just, I want to just get on my own method. And having to adapt my play to what other people will think and what impression they will have and having to adapt to what I think they're up to, that's just something I could never really embrace. And although my sort of career is easier that way because you can just focus on what you're doing, I probably still can get stuck in a, in a groove and sometimes need to shake myself out of it, yeah. Okay, now, do you think you're one of these people that would always succeed in any line of business that they decided to apply themselves to, or is your prowess at gambling an exceptional talent? I don't know. Um, 
probably over time there will be a few. I'm certainly keen to invest in more bloodstock-related things and a few projects there, so I'm sure that will test that a little bit. Um, but maybe more just, as I say, even that's, that's you know, as an investor rather than actually getting involved with a business. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I suppose it's a part of you would like to think so, but it would be totally unproven. Um, yeah. Have, have you diversified from gambling at all, you know, at, totally at the... Apart yeah. from the charity, I'd say Bloodstock. I've done property and shares and that sort of thing, but maybe one day I should be, you know, thrown into run a business, you know, run a chain of baker shops or something like that. Just, be, I, I quite fancy that business of being able to, you know, go around as a troubleshooter and what what I would improve and that sort of thing. Whether having had my own way in terms of my working day every day, whether getting involved in minutiae would be as good. I don't know. Um, it's certainly open to some doubt, but I'd, you know, I'd give it a go if the opportunity came up. Okay, and the final question. Should the bookmakers still be scared of enemy number one? <laughs> well, they're scared of everyone now, aren't they, Simon? <laughs> I don't know if I contributed a tiny bit to that, but, um, but yeah, I think that's more just as, as we discussed that the, the landscape has changed. So, yeah, well, I suppose you'd say that's up to them. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure they're listening intently. Patrick Veach, thank you very much. No worries.